Welcome to the Beyond Listening podcast with Miriam Jones and Adam Rumack. The Beyond Listening podcast is where we have conversations with people who are living with passion and purpose through their work, sharing ideas, insights, strategies, and ways of seeing the world and work which will challenge and enlighten. The Beyond Listening podcast is brought to you by We Are Open Circle, a social impact business that helps change makers organizations and community groups evolve and thrive with integrity in our rapidly changing world. Welcome. We're here at the Beyond Listening podcast with Adam Rumack and Miriam Jones. And we have the delight to introduce Ari to you today. Welcome, Ari. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my absolute pleasure to be here. We always feel like we can't give justice to someone's introduction. Um, you know, and we, we wanted to ask, if you were to introduce yourself, mm-hmm. how would you introduce yourself? Uh, so how would I introduce myself? Uh, well, the story as I understand it to be true as I grew up in Chicago. Uh, I came to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I'm sitting right now, to go to University of Michigan, where I studied Russian history, a particular focus on the anarchists. It's a little known fact, even here in Ann Arbor, that the university has the largest anarchist collection uh, in the country. And so I used to go up there and study I was on the seventh, and now they've added the eighth floor of the graduate library. Uh, After graduating with my history degree, there is, of course, nothing one can really do with a history degree except qualify to get more degrees, which is what I was supposed to do, but I wasn't ready for that, and so I decided I would just take some time off, as one says. And uh, we do a lot of work here at Zingerman's around visioning, which maybe we'll talk more about during our conversation, but when I graduated, I had really no vision of my life uh, other than I had what David White, W-H-Y-T-E, the poet and writer, uh, calls the via negativa. So this is where you're clueless about where you would like to go, but you're very clear on where you do not want to go. And I knew I didn't want to go home. Uh, In order to not go home, I needed a job. I'd driven a taxi part-time while I was in school. This is long before Lyft and Uber. Uh, was fine, but not that interesting. One of my college roommates was waiting tables at a restaurant in downtown Ann Arbor, which is about, for those who haven't been here, 15 minutes at most from the edge of Ann Arbor. And uh, I went in there looking for a job that he, like what he had as a server, they interviewed me, said they would call me if something opened. I waited a couple weeks. They still hadn't called me. So I returned, reapplied as a busser. They said they'd call me. I waited a few more weeks. They still hadn't called me. I was running out of money. I went back and said, hey, I'll do anything. They offered me a job as a dishwasher and I took it and that's how I got started. So there is no lifelong ambition to work with food. My mother was a good person, but not a good cook. I grew up on Kraft macaroni and cheese out of the box. Mrs. Paul's fish sticks, Pop-Tarts, Tang, Green Jello fruit cocktail out of the can and other uh, exceedingly glamorous mid-20th century industrial foods. And I really had no ever thought of going into business. No one in my family was in business, so it wasn't even like I had the mental bandwidth to imagine being in business. Um, but uh, but anyway, so 
uh, I just really lucked out. I stumbled into a line of work that I love. I love food and cooking and then also into great people. So Paul Saginaw, who's been my partner in all this from the get-go, was the general manager at that restaurant when I started washing dishes. And that's how we met. So I worked for that restaurant group for about four years, cooking and managing kitchens. Uh, Paul left about halfway through that and opened a little fish market here in town, which I know you're on the when people are on the coast, it's hard to imagine, but we actually have one of the best fish markets in the country here in the middle of the country. And uh, he and I stayed friends. And uh, fall of 81, I reached a point that's probably the antithesis of the work that you do, which is where my job was fine, but it was less and less inspiring. Uh, certainly pleasant people. It's what I would now call a good job, but not good work. Uh, and so I decided I would give notice. I didn't know what I was going to do next, but November 181, I gave two months notice, unsure of what would come after, but I didn't have any debt really. And it was just time to get out of there. And Paul, not knowing I had given notice, called me to see if I would be interested uh, to follow up on conversations we had had off and on over the years about maybe opening a little deli because in Detroit, where he grew up, you could get good deli food. And in Chicago, you could get it where I grew up, but it wasn't available here in town. So it was just good timing in that regard. And this little building near the fish market was coming open. And we went and looked at it. And somehow, within like under a week, we decided we were going to open. And somehow, four and a half months later, on March 15th, 1982, we opened the Zingerman's Delicatessen in a little 1,300 square foot space with two employees and I think 29 seats and 25 sandwiches on the menu and a very small selection of what's now called specialty food, but at that time was just called weird. I'll pause there. <laughs> Thank you. There's already so many threads in there. <laughs> and we just, I, I want to pull just, you know, there, it's so interesting on so many, when so many people describe their story of, 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 of formation there's so often synchronicity in there synchronicity mm -hmm. like well things just came together in this way not planned i'm wondering and often that that seems to be an indication of a kind of a thread that that is is through someone's life a thread that not not necessarily a job or a career um, mm -hmm. and often that thread we can see the the beginnings of it in our childhood um, if you think back to your childhood where do you, can you think of any stories that really tell the, the story of the thread that you've followed in your life, really illustrate? Yeah. You know, it's a great question and it's a good image, but I don't know of any stories in my childhood. Um, I, I mean, I'm a history major, so I, I, it's always interesting to look back and, and our perspectives on what happened are informed, of course, by what our current beliefs are. And so, uh, as G.K. Chesterton, the English or British writer, said, the past is not what it once was. So we, we inevitably and often unconsciously, sometimes people do it consciously as per the current state of the country, but uh, consciously alter the history in order to fit with our beliefs. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's certainly a good question, but I there was nothing in my childhood that would have indicated to me that I was going to be in business or cooking whatsoever. Uh, the only threads I could find would be uh, that I, as an awkward introvert whose mother believed in books and learning and took us to the library from the time we were tiny kids, that I 
I came to be and still am most comfortable with a book by myself. Uh, and so that certainly helped to inform my learning uh, and growth. And then if I want to pull more threads, uh, partly making them up in the good way to fit the context that we're pursuing, but it's but there's truth to them. Uh, because I grew up in a family who, out of their own good intentions, but not necessarily in my best interest, were very insistent on pursuing religious activity. And I'm not judging others for having it, but uh, I think probably by the time I was eight or nine, I was already highly resistant and they didn't really listen to my resistance. You know, it's just, I don't have kids. It's hard to know when it's time to push back and when it's time to let them do what they want. But uh, one could say that my anarchism interests uh, came out of that ex childhood experience. And actually, Emma Goldman, who I write a lot about, who was uh, J. Edgar Hoover called the most dangerous woman in America about a hundred and something years ago, uh, the same thing. She said, every child is at heart an anarchist. And I actually, I would say that makes sense, but we learn to conform and fit in to varying degrees. So those are threads that come to my mind. Ah, oh, thank you. So rich. Um, you know, the, the first thread of the book and the learning, um, you know, if I was to describe you from my outside view, I would have used the, the term writer <laughs> because I've, I've delved into so much of your writing in preparation for today. So, you know, and, and also a writer who is passionate about, about learning. Um, I hear that in, in what you write and about your own and others. Um, and then the other thread of of the 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 anarchism. Can you explain for for our for our listeners? Can you explain yes. that quote and what that would mean about the child and what that would mean to you? Well, I, so yes, anarchism is very commonly misunderstood. I'm not here to say I speak for all anarchists. That would be silly on any subject and certainly 10 times sillier with anarchism. But uh, so the commonly held belief is that anarchism is about chaos, rock throwing, destruction, which I would actually suggest is much more, more effectively classed as nihilism. Uh, what I would suggest anarchism for me is, is it's a belief system uh, so Gustav Landauer, whose work really inspires me, uh, German pacifist, uh, anarchist, early late 19th, early 20th century, said we have no political beliefs. We have beliefs against politics. So I'm not saying I didn't vote in the fall. Clearly, or not clearly I absolutely did. Uh, however, it's really not about who's in charge. It's about a belief system that for me starts with a positive belief in human beings. Uh, a belief in freedom, but not freedom from. So not like you can't make me do this. And, I, you know, like you can't make me wear a mask or whatever one wants to go down, but more I have the freedom to choose to participate and contribute, collect uh, constructively to the community of which I am a part. I have the freedom to choose uh, to do the right thing, etc. So it's, it's really about that. And it's based really on a spirit of generosity on the belief that we're all trying to do the right thing and that we can contribute positively those around us by living a good life within ourselves. So it's very much tied to art and beauty and, and honoring the individual for the unique human being that they are. 
uh, and staying out of hierarchical thinking, staying out of assigning people identities externally, uh, staying out of the belief that just because you can be fit into some group that everyone in that group has the same characteristics, which I don't really think makes any sense. Uh, trying to remember that the statistics are not the people. There's individuals who might have fit a statistic, but it doesn't make them the statistics. So it's, it's really about a positive belief in free choice and getting out of hierarchy and trying to treat everybody with dignity and the belief they all have insight and understanding that I don't have and that we together can do great things. So the, the, you, so the, you grew up in a religious household. No one listened to you is what I heard, that no, one's, no one actually heard you that you were adamantly not in that religion. I can relate to that. Yeah, well, they might have heard me, but they didn't like what they heard. They like I, you know, it's, it's not like it was all bad. I mean, I grew up in a yeah. you know, nice middle-class, dysfunctional, uh, learning-focused family who, yeah. who you know, I choose, I've come to, having studied beliefs, I've come to believe, choose the belief that everyone is attempting to do what they believe is best. So I have zero doubt at this stage of my life, which is a long time from my childhood, that my mother was trying to do anything other than what she thought was best. I mean, and it's hard to know what's best because at the time we're in situations, we don't have the benefit of hindsight. But regardless, yes, I was trying to tell them I was not interested in that. And as happens, I think, in many families, there's a determination that the kid is off base and doesn't know what they're talking about. And they're just, it's going to, it's a phase. <laughs> And it's going to pass. So we need to just push you to hold course until the phase passes. Little did they know that that phase would 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 be would would kind of come into this thread, which which forms in yeah. Which is yeah. I can absolutely yeah. see the blueprint from what you've said of guiding principles at the center of how that kind of guides you know, and and it sounds to me like the ability for those guiding principles, um, and beliefs to welcome people who have who who. Who, which are which are humanistic, and which yeah. have the ability to welcome people of different religious, different cultures, different. Um, yeah. 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 And pro probably yeah. welcome yourself in your difference in your family. Yeah, and I, I guess in my mind, this is just me. You know, all the pieces, as you're mindfully aware and leading me in a good way. Uh, all, all of us are unique. And we all have multiple components to who we are, right? And so I'm honored that you think of me as a writer. I still think of myself as a line cook who's doing pretty well. We all have different perceptions of, of who we are, right? And there's multiple uh, components to, to make up our personality. But I, I, I was just thinking as you were talking, uh, Sean Eskenazi, who's a good friend of mine who makes amazing chocolate in Missouri, uh, who also likes Khalil Gibran, uh, talks about uh, that our vocation, which is something probably that we're going to talk about, uh, is, is our effort consciously or not to heal our childhood wound. And I, I, I believe that makes total sense when I heard him say it. And I, I just actually wrote this for the e-news that I do. I just wrote a piece about the importance of names. <clears throat> and I just would suggest that we have more than one wound. <laughs> It's not like a hierarchical thinking where you would pick the biggest wound and that becomes your vocation, but we have multiple. So I was writing a piece for the e-news, as I said, about using people's names. So, I mean, in a small organization like yours, clearly you know each other and you work together, but when you start to get into businesses or nonprofits where there's 50, 70, 100, 500, 5,000 people working, it's 
unfortunately become very common that the boss, the leader, whatever she or he doesn't know the names of the people that they pass by in the hall every day or the person who works the front desk, but they, they heard their name once on day one, but it's embarrassing nine months later, they don't know the name, so they just go without it. And I, I realized like over the years, I just have tried really hard to learn people's names. And then like anything else in life, when you believe it's important, you work at it. When you work at it, you get good at it. When you get good at it, you get reinforced for it and you do it more and you become good at it. Interestingly, over the years, a lot of people who would work here would say like, it's crazy that you know my name because like I worked in my old job for three years and my boss never knew my name. And I realized like this is actually an important piece of work. Anyway, going back to the childhood wound, having a name that now it's easier to find people who can say Ari, but when I was younger, it was very commonly mispronounced. It's still not uncommonly mispronounced. And it it is, it is like this childhood thing of frustration. It like clearly, even though I told you it's Ari, but you would say Ari was very frustrating. So here I am on the campaign to help people in leadership roles pay attention to learning the names and pronouncing them in ways that are appropriate for the person uh, that you're working with. And, and thank and maybe you that came out of my childhood. Thank you for deepening our question of the relationship between childhood and, and work. And I, I, I have a whole nother line that I want to go along, but I want to leave this as a kind of like stop gap to let Adam, to see if Adam has any questions or reflections at this point before we kind of go down the next line. I mean, reflection, starting with reflection, um, thinking about where we started and talking about, or I guess it's, I think it was David White. And I don't know if it was, we got it from, I got it from David White, we got it from David White, but this, but definitely it's there in Khalil Gibran's uh, poem on work being love made visible that work is actually an act of vulner true work is an act of vulnerability yeah. and i think that's the heart of it and why is it an act of vulnerability it's because in a sense we're exposing our our wounds mm -hmm. you know that no matter what we're doing if we're passionate about it enough to be visible in it and make our hearts visible it's like we're putting it all out there um and i i think that people who are not in roles of visible leadership and I don't just mean in a hierarchical sense, um, are that people that aren't in those roles don't under, necessarily understand that, you know? And so it's easy to criticize or um, judge or, you know, give false names to <laughs> those folks um, without, without recognizing the fact that they're there with their wounds on their, on their sleeves. Yep. So that's by way of reflection, I think. Um, and I think this is like this is like our political week um, because we have two two uh, guests on our show here um, that are out. Well, I wasn't expecting you to be so outwardly political um, from the beginning, and maybe it was just the tone with which we you you stepped into our conversation as we were uh, connecting before this this program. Um, but but it's top of mind for me that, that the anarchism. Um, and capitalism. So you're certainly your business, um, your businesses are participating in the capitalist system. Yeah. And people that I'm aware of that that would argue that capitalism and anarchism don't go together, um, and that they're somehow, um, I don't know, they go, anarchism is against 
the hierarchy that sort that capitalism yeah. tends to to support. So I'm curious, like how you, I'm sure you've thought about that, um, and curious how you, as a business person, um, bring those two, bring your deep thinking um, to to your participation in that system and what you do about it to to mitigate to to um, bring those two things together. Well, I don't claim to have ideal answers. It's certainly a good question. Thank you. Well, you wouldn't yeah. be on this program if we thought you had ideal answers, because then we wouldn't be having a, a no one, conversation. No, no one does have ideal <laughs> answers. But, and, and again, I mean, I, I would suggest this is really the, the antithesis of politics, actually. So it's, it's not political. I mean, I guess in some ways you're going to say everything is political, but it's, it's really about a way of life. And it's about how I treat you and treat everybody I interact with and how I treat myself. And that's where it begins. So, and I, I, I don't, I, I mean, I, I don't love stereotypes. I mean, there's, there's images and beliefs about everything that, so I, I don't know. I don't really know why one has to be in business with the attempt to gouge and extract as much as possible. And I can't really find anything when I read the stuff. I don't care. I don't think of myself as a capitalist, but I, I can't, even when I look at it, I can't really find anything that says you have to do that. It's just become the commonly accepted belief that that's what one ought to do. Uh, and I, interestingly, and again, I'm not the world expert, but when one studies the whole model of, uh, survival of the fittest that Darwin wrote about. So from what I learned and also wrote about, but there's nothing in Darwin that says it's a war of all against all. That came from Thomas Hobbes, who interpreted Darwin. And from that belief, which there's no evidence that it's true, but from my limited understanding, look, and now we're going down a whole rabbit hole that I claim to have no expertise. But so uh, when one studies modern economics in the capitalist model, it's based on a belief that everyone will make decisions in their own self-interest. And then we need, and when you follow the self-fulfilling belief cycle that I learned and wrote about a lot about, uh, if you believe everyone's going to make decisions in their self-interest, then it is an obvious conclusion that one ought to grab one's own share quickly first before it's all gone, which re leads the other people to believe that they better grab theirs, which reinforces our belief. It's a good thing we grabbed ours because look what would have happened if we didn't. But if you change that original core root belief and you adopt the belief that, let's say, Peter Kropotkin uh, in the late 19th century in his book Mutual Aid came out in 1902, or now Adam Grant in the progressive business world wrote about too, it, it's, it's not an accurate, I don't buy the belief. So if you work with the belief that spirit of generosity is what drives success and that the more we give, the better we're all going to do, the more we share power and responsibility, the better we're going to do. That our responsibility is to rebalance the ecosystem because it's always slightly out of balance. So somebody has more knowledge, we need to share it. Somebody has more money, let's try to figure out how to help those who have less. Some people have more power, let's try to give more power to those who have less. So if we try to continually rebalance the ecosystem in the belief that it's going to help all of us, right, then we end up in a different place. So I like the free market in the context of it pushes me to continue to go out there every day and earn 
the customer's trust and respect. It pushes me every day to earn the trust and respect of the people who choose to work with us and give us the gift of having them in the organization because I don't want to take anything for granted. And if I don't go out and re-earn it every day, then I'm in trouble, right? So I like that part of the free market. Uh, I don't understand really the, the, the economics of like why the, like if it costs uh, X amount of whatever dollars, whatever currency you're using to produce the beans that make a cup of coffee, it's beyond me why it would be worth a quarter on Monday and $3 on Wednesday. I don't really understand that. So, uh, but there's a lot of interesting beliefs that circulate and people make decisions accordingly. So I guess we're trying to work as best we can uh, within the construct that we ex- are living in the greater world and try to make as much positive difference as we can and use the free market really from my end more to challenge myself and challenge ourselves to do better every day and push ourselves to, like I said, to go out and re-earn that trust uh, from those we work with. Um, I think that we're all involved in pragmatic um, action yeah. in the world. Yeah. And we do that through through business, through organizations. Um, and so my question is there, how, what are some of the ways that are most important to you right now that you that you live that and 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 operationalize that not just for yourself as a leader of um, of businesses of organization, um, yeah. What are some of the ways that you you make that real for for yourself and for for the people that work with you? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, so uh, one of the things that influenced me a lot was another thing from Gustav Landauer, the German guy that I mentioned earlier. So he's wrote and it resonated with me that uh, I'm, I'm going to use politics, but I'm going to use it to get away from politics. So he said that, you know, one of the common threads of anarchist thinking commonly is about getting rid of government. And I have neutral beliefs about government. I don't feel badly. I don't think it's the greatest thing in the world. It's just an organization trying to do the right thing like everybody else. So what he said is trying to destroy the state is an act of opposition. It's a negative act. And that as long as we stay in resistance against it, we're locked in that negative relationship, much like I was locked in a negative relationship, let's say with my mother, uh, as a teenager trying to push back against all the things that I didn't want to do. Right. And what he said is, as long as we continue on that path, we will never really be free. Uh, and he said that this, it's not that this, the people are in the state, it's that the state is in the people. We've internalized the beliefs around it. And we said that the real progress can be made by going away from it, leaving it alone, and creating f- communities. And obviously, I'm paraphrasing, but creating communities where people can think free- more freely and treat each other with more dignity, etc. And when I read that, I was like, you know, that's kind of what we're trying to do. Like, I'm not, I'm just trying to do the right thing here. And there's so much uh, in the world at large that's not great, uh, to your point of your question. And I don't have global solutions. In fact, I think it, they don't make sense because we all want local food. Local solutions make sense. And I'm not, this isn't a conversation around states' rights versus federal influence. This is a question of what can I do, what can we do here at Zingerman's to make a positive difference, regardless of what the rest of the world is doing. So. For me, I mean, very practical answers. I mean, it just starts with how we treat everybody. So I, I, I 
if I treat everybody with dignity like my equal, and I believe they are, it makes a difference. If we act in generosity when much of the world is acting out of stinginess or self-inflation, uh, it makes a difference. If we honor artisan producers and are willing to pay more to buy what they produce, which I know they're not making a lot of money on despite the public's perception of how costly things are. Most of them should be double what they are. That uh, makes a difference in their lives. And then like when we buy uh, telecherry pepper through our wonderful spice importers in Montreal, a piece de crew, and they're working with uh, a, a guy named Sudhir in Kerala in Southwest India. And he's working with one to two acre family farms to source really amazing pepper and paying significantly more for the mark for above the market uh, price to get that that's helping people in those areas to live better we're serving more flavorful food and we need to charge for it because it costs us a lot more but it's creating i would suggest in small ways but ultimately hopefully meaningful virtuous cycles instead of the cycles of extraction and negativity and, and conflict that are not, I don't believe are needed, but it's just what people are used to. So all, all of that, I think, makes a difference. And then this whole idea of your podcast, I mean, and your work around what I would call good work or vocation, I mean, is helping people see that work is not a negative thing, that it's not like you're stuck working, but more that you have the freedom and the opportunity to as you said, make yourself vulnerable by working on what you believe in and doing positive things that can really make a positive difference for those around you. you know, I heard what you, you, what I think you said was around belief creating reality. And, you know, so many of the organizations that we work with are looking for how can we grow? Like, what is a good way to grow? And in, in, you know, it's very unique what happened at Zingerman's. What you found was this kind of this growth around sort of centrally guiding principles, like putting guiding principles at the centre and then sort of allowing the structures to grow in their own ways, in their own localised ways in the businesses. And I hear that reflected in what you're talking about now. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, was that instinctive or intuitive or, you know, it seems to come out of these beliefs? Was it a conscious thing to apply those beliefs in this? But it... I guess what I'm seeing is it's been successful, this kind of model of guiding principles at the centre and localised structure. Um, can you talk more to that? Yes, I can. Um, was it intuitive? Well, in the spirit of what you asked about threads going back, yes. But was it just like, I just knew this is what to do? No. Um, so when, so I wrote, I'm trying to just think about where to best start the conversation. So in part one of the business book series, building a great business, uh, there's an essay called 12 natural laws of business. This is it is my belief that these are like gravity there. You can debate them, but they will be no different whether you say they work or they don't. Uh, the, the first one on the list, uh, is that all, great organizations. So I don't mean necessarily the ones making the most money, but the ones living the life of their choosing. So it could be you two in the work you do here. Uh, it could be a basketball team. It could be a family. It could be a business, whatever. 
that they all have a vision. So <clears throat> we happen to write out our visions in a very detailed way that I'm happy to share. But even if you don't do it that way, somebody still had a vision. So businesses are not mushrooms and they don't just pop up in the woods after a rainstorm. Like somebody, whether it's a nine-year-old who wanted a lemonade stand or somebody in Palo Alto or whatever, wherever it is, Meadow, Meadow View, uh, Mountain View that, that wanted a high-tech business, you know, they, they had an idea of what they wanted to create. In essence, they imagined it. And I, it's my suggestion, this is a natural human process that all, going back to your first question, all kids know how to do, but society trains us out of it. So uh, we all have that creative imagination, but we get pushed, uh, as Rollo may suggest, to conform all the time. And then we do, and then either we stay there or we start fighting back in some mix of the two, probably for most of us. But, but anyway, so... Uh, when Paul and I opened the deli in 1982, we did not write out a vision the way we now do it very commonly, but in hindsight, we had one. So if I were to put together the bullet points of what would have been in that vision had we written it, uh, we knew from the beginning we wanted something very unique. Uh, I've always been drawn to unique businesses. Uh, working in the food world, I was never drawn to franchises. I didn't like, I never experienced like the fifth version of the same restaurant as being particularly interesting. It's convenient if you lived in the suburbs, but it was boring. Uh, and so I, we wanted something unique, not a copy of New York or Chicago, Detroit, LA, whatever. Uh, we knew we wanted great food, great service, great place for people to work. And from the beginning, with that uniqueness in mind, we knew we only wanted one. Like all the food businesses that I was really drawn to or admired, it's always like there was one, like just one amazing one. And like people went there and, you know, like I think of places in Barcelona or in New York, whatever it was, but there was one of them. Uh, and, and you went there and when you went there, it was unlike anything else you'd been to. And you remembered it in that way. And so I was always focused on how do we make that, not how do we spread out and make more. Fast forwarding, uh, 1993, so we'd been in business for uh, 11 years, roughly, and, or 11 and a half, and Paul sat me down in front of the deli on the little wood bench that's still out there, and uh, mid-morning when I should have been setting up the sandwich line to get ready for the lunch rush, and he kind of looks at me and he goes, okay, in 10 years, what are we doing? And I, I'm sure, rolled my eyes and looked at him weird, and he's... I said, I don't know, what are you talking about? And he's like, in 10 years, what are we doing? I mean, is this crazy? Like, you know, because we're only going to have this one, like we've turned down offers from Chicago and other cities to open, you know, and now because we're not opening multiple units, people are opening other delis on campus and they're, they're eating into our sales. And, you know, what are we doing? I'm like, dude, I don't know. I got work to do. And, you know, it's sort of like, this is our work. So in hindsight, uh, it was a good question. I, in our current language, he was asking, what, what's your vision for the future? I didn't have one. Uh, I don't really think he had one either, but what he did have is an intuitive and accurate sense uh, that we had fulfilled our original vision. So in a personal sense, one might equate this to midlife or to finishing college or to your kids grew up and they moved out of the house. It's like stuff that was a long way out. You didn't know if you could really pull it off. It actually happened. But then you realize you're not done. So like I, I look at like running hills in San Francisco, like it, you're like, OK, this is a big hill, but I could do this. And then I like get to the top. I'm like, oh, my God, there's seven more hills. What do I do? So uh, 
so we didn't know the answer, but we spent a year trying to come up with it. And around that time or during that time is when we first uh, started to work with a guy named Stash Kazmierski, uh, who at that time was a consultant for a little firm called Dana Miller Tyson uh, that was up the block. And they were known nationally for their progressive organizational change work. And Stash, both as part of that and from his earlier work, had worked with a guy named Ron Lippett, who was at University of Michigan in the late 50s, 60s, and 70s, and early 80s. And he developed a process that he called preferred futuring or positive futuring, which we have evolved and now call visioning. And we learned it from Stash. And in 1993 and 94 we is the first time we actually wrote a vision. And it was called Zingerman's 2009. So if you do the math, you quickly see we actually went 15 years in the future, not 10. And that was about six pages long. And we described what we would create. So to answer your question, it stayed true to the belief that we only wanted one. But it, it was a way to weave in, using your thread metaphor, uh, Paul's belief that we needed to keep growing. So instead of doing what everybody else did, which is open 53 Zingerman's delis all over, Minneapolis, I'm sure, would have been high on the list. Uh, or more glamorously, we could have gone to Sydney. Um, instead of doing that, we would create a community of businesses where each would be a Zingerman's business. It would all be one synergistic organization, but each would have its own specialty. So instead of replicating the content, we would replicate the values, in essence, uh, and that each business would have a managing partner in it that owned part of it and had a passion for what that business did. Also in the belief that to get to greatness, it's not a, like a startup project for a year or two. Like my question was always, that's a lot of work, but it's kind of the easy part. The hard part is 16 years later, who's still trying to improve what you do? Because that's really what, like now I might say mastery, like that's really where that comes from, is not like push hard for 18 months and then transfer to another division. <laughs> it's going to come from like, I'm going to be an amazing baker and I'm going to just keep learning and learning and learning and learning. And that's a, how you master your craft or you get to the vocation that you're going to ask me about in a little while. So that's really where that came from. Uh, it was a way to bring together seemingly disparate intentions and weave them together into one holistically sound vision. Uh, and that's how it happened. And I still believe in it. And I, you know, I, I have a strong belief about doing business in the place that you're in. So uh, going back a little bit to some of our earlier conversations. So the typical model is you just keep opening further and further afield. But I, a couple things, like I look at it like you're part of the ecosystem. And so in the same way that in France, they talk about terroir influences, this, this, the, the nutrients and minerals in the soil influence what grows in it and change the flavor. I think it's the same for organizations, like the terroir of the community influences your organization and then because it's a regenerative holistic system we also influence the terroir of where we are right and and so i never liked the idea of you just go to another ecosystem with the same model it does in my mind it doesn't make sense uh it's like running a farm in in michigan from new york you're calling in what okay do this okay do that like you're not there like you need to be in the soil and feel the soil and feel the weather. And I don't mean there's no science involved, but it's also part craft and part feeling. So, and it, to, to, to Adam's earlier questions, it gets a little colonial to me when you start to like run the Zingermans in LA from Ann Arbor because you're not there. And 
in, if we choose the best beliefs, like the people in London were convinced that they were doing the right thing for India. I mean, they had no hesitation that like this was the best for everybody. We're going to civilize people. We're going to teach them the proper way to speak English. We're going to, and by taking all their their financial resources out of the country, we're actually helping them because they're making more doing the extractive work than they're, you know, whatever. I mean, they had rationales that I believe led them to believe they were saving the world. I would prefer to let the rest of the world save itself, not out of malice or, or apathy, but just I don't know what's right for somebody in West Hollywood. Like that's for them to figure out. There's so much there's so much for me in that picture. So many threads, man. No, We're have like an so organic much. cloth factory. No, there's so much there is so many threads, but there's so much for me in that picture of him, you know, the bench and him saying, you know, what's our ten year vision and you rolling your eyes. <laughs> Everything is in that moment, the role of the eyes, the vision and the tension between those two things yeah. that from which grew this unique kind of this unique model. Um, and, you know, the, the, the temptation, of course, is then to go, OK, the misunderstanding that we so often see in organisations is, OK, that means that localised is right you know, because right. because that worked, that was success. And what I really heard in your story was actually it was that you know, it was that you. It was the. It was the natural law that you had guiding principles. That you had a relationship in which you could talk about those. Like it took a year. Like that was, yeah. seemed really significant. It took a year. You had a partnership in which you could have those guiding principles come to realize them and then come towards a vision amidst the tension of your relationship. And I'm. Yeah. I'm really interested in in. Uh, and this wasn't a planned question, but very interested in that relationship because it seemed like something creative was born from the from the both the shared value, but also the role of the eyes and the what's our ten year vision, the tension as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah. can you speak to that a little bit? I'm sure I can. Uh, so I guess I would suggest that all relationships, especially between equals which is part of the anarchist belief system, have the potential to have that creativity come from them. And I don't mean no creativity comes by law from hierarchical ones either, but if you're not forcing somebody to do something and you're committed to shared success, then it requires in a good way, it provides a framework, a container, whatever metaphor you wanna use that pushes us to keep conversing to come to a win-win solution. Uh, so like on a massive scale, if you just revert to violence, emotional violence or military violence or whatever as a, as a tool, then it gets in the way of the awkwardness of and vulnerability to Adam's earlier point of, of what those conversations can be. So I'm not gonna tell you like I was happy throughout that whole, thing because it's frustrating when somebody doesn't see what you see or at least for me I don't know maybe other people like it but but that said is the we we had the informal commitment and now it's more uh, formally documented in the organization we're just going to keep coming back to the table till we get to agreement and we now like this is now one of our many organizational recipes is for stewardship which in essence says we're going to treat everybody like our equal even if they're not hierarchically in the operational sense, we're going to treat them like our equal and we're going to work together to come to agreement. Now, in the end, 
if you're the boss, you have, we have the authority, but we're going to try to use it as little as we absolutely have to and work more to have conversation and try to, because there is usually some insight and wisdom in the other person's perspective, almost always. And so if we can work together in that way, then people are learning to think like equals, which they don't, which most of us, by the way, me included, have almost no experience with. We learn how to be the child and push back or follow orders. And we learn how to be the boss or the parent and tell people what to do or let them do what they want. But we don't really learn I, I don't think, I didn't learn, hopefully people who are working here are learning more of it now, but learn how to really share strong feelings, but not in a way that was trying to force the other person to follow what I wanted. So yeah, it did create creativity uh, and it became a practice that we have tried to systemically teach through the organization. So, it's, yeah, it seems like in the foundation was that very kind of by having it as a partnership where you had to do that wrestling, where you, you almost going back to your childhood where, you know, you, you, it wasn't being ignored, the fact that you had different beliefs, but you wrestled with them. Right. It was kind of embedded yeah. in, in, in the centre of the, the growth. Yeah, and it still plays out all the time. I mean, so we use consensus at the partner level. This is another application, Adam, of what you were asking about earlier. So at the partner level, we use consensus. So it doesn't matter what percentage one of us owns. It's irrelevant other than if there's money to be paid out at the end of the year, which some years there is and some years there's not. Uh, other than that, it's the same. If you own 1% or you own 91%, we're still going to decide by consensus of the partners. And then we run the whole community of businesses by consensus of all the partners. So this isn't investors, that's separate, but this is people who are running, working in one of the businesses and running the running that business. Then they also wear the hat of helping to lead the whole organization. Uh, and we, six years ago, I think, six and a half years ago, added what we call staff partners. So there's three staff partners that are, come out of the non-partner population of the organization who sit on that consensus. So they essentially have the same say I do uh, because it's consensus. So it's we've tried to embed systemically and then through teaching stuff like stewardship, try to embed culturally uh, these same practices that Paul and I stumbled into, <laughs> whether intuitively or accidentally or whatever. Just a clarifying question about the consensus decision making. What are you deciding mm -hmm. about at that level um, when you when you gather? With so we're yeah, good question. So we're that's where the organization is run. It's not where we would decide the price of a cup of coffee at the coffee shop, but it's where we would decide if we were going to open a new business. It's where we would decide if we were going to, uh, as we did a few months ago, approve our new statement of beliefs that we're now rolling out to the organization because everybody here in, in whether intentionally or not, once we've decided we're committed to honoring that. So it's where we, if we were going to add a fourth step to our three steps to great service that we were all going to use, it's where we would decide that it's not where we decide what's going on the menu at the deli. It's not where we decide which seminar Zing train is going to offer in the fall, et cetera. So it's, it's really just big organizational decisions. There actually aren't that many, uh, but like, you know, when the pandemic started, it's where we made a decision at the partner level that we were going to all commit to staying open unless we absolutely could not. How? As an example. So sometimes that 
that line between what's operational and what's kind of po uh, policy or organizational wide can be gray. What's your experience of that yes. line? Like, how do you cut that? And is there, when does it become gray in your experience? It's, it's all gray. Just read the news. No one knows. <laughs> we don't know, but we have agreement on how to figure it out. That's the key. The key is that you have agreement on how to figure out where you're going to decide gray is. That's the key because it's all gray. Right. And so no one knows. I mean, I mean, pick any national political challenge like going through it right now. I can tell you where I land, but it doesn't matter. Like they're trying to argue over who decides on who gets to vote. They're arguing between, in our case, the business and the overall organization. So sometimes it's clear, but many times it's not. And then we converse like Paul and I did on the bench and we, we need to come to agreement. It's most, I mean, I grew up wanting everything black and white, and I've learned it's barely ever, hardly ever black and white. It's almost all gray. My question, and I don't know if this is, a, you know, I heard you, I heard you say something, and I'm not, I don't want to say that this is, um, you know, necessarily well thought out, or you use this phrase all the time. So, you know, feel free to push back on this question if you want. Um, but you said that. Um, that the, the, org the business and the community of businesses depends on people treating each other as equals, um, even if there are power differentials in decision-making, et cetera, and that you systemically teach that um, or systematically. I'm not sure which is mm -hmm. systemically or systematically. And our... Um, in our experience of working with organizations that use consensus or use more um, uh, flat decision-making structures or organizational structures, there are so many ways to um, exert power and control and potentially violence uh, against people who disagree with us. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those are sort of hidden among those of us that maybe didn't grow up that way, right? Like mm -hmm. we expect that power is held in, in hierarchies. And so, um, so we learn, you know, we've learned over time that, you know, just because it assists uh, decision-making, the decision-making looks flat and equal that there's all these other kind of human, human things going on. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm wondering how you, how you teach and how you train and how you, um, infuse your organization with, with that kind of care and respect. Um, and if it is systematic or if it's something that sort of just flows out from, from those that are in leadership. Well, it's all imperfect. We screw it up daily. I screw it up daily. Uh, I, I don't know the answer really. I mean, I, I guess my belief clear, clearly there's some things that are fairly straightforward, like I'm the owner, I have some power that others don't have, I'm older, I'm taller, I'm whatever. That said, I still believe it's somewhat oversimplified because it doesn't all flow hierarchically. Uh, passive aggressive people in a group can control the group while acting like victim, or not control, they can manage the group or influence it radically through acting like victims. 
so it's not as simple as that. And I'm not saying it's the equal power, but the reality is like right now, when everyone's short staffed, there's a lot of power that you have in a good way as an hourly employee who can walk out and get 12 more jobs tomorrow. But the person who owns the business, not, I'm not whining about it, but they're the, they got to stay there. And now that you don't have anybody working for you. So in a good way, that power is distributed in ways that are not often recognized. So like I learned a long time ago from serving families, frequently the power's not in who's paying, the power's in the seven-year-old. And they're running, the, they are in that situation. I mean, that's clearly where the power lies at that family dynamic in that moment. Now, I'm not disowning the systemic and historical power structures that clearly influence all of us, whether we mean for them to influence us or not. But it's just, again, I guess I would say trying to constantly rebalance it and trying to compensate. So like I look, I'm a shy, awkward introvert. I, I am afraid of the new dishwasher. This is not an exaggeration. When I see them, I want to hide. I just have tried to train myself intellectually to overcome that by remembering they're more afraid of me than I am of them. And that the burden is on me to go say hi and welcome them and introduce myself, even though I don't really want to because <laughs> it's awkward. So like part of this, I guess, is uh, honoring that anxiety and discomfort are okay. They're part of normal human existence. And even here, though, it's a common statement by people who mean well, but like we have to make it so people are comfortable bringing up the difficult questions. I'm like, I'm not comfortable bringing up the difficult questions. I'm afraid to bring it up to Paul and we've been working together for 40 years. I'm afraid to bring it up to my significant other. I'm afraid to even think it. It's just learning to own the fear is normal and then go through it in a constructive way anyway, because the odds of people being comfortable calling up or bringing up a difficult issue are pretty low. Like maybe they're better adjusted than I am, <laughs> which is possible and likely, but, but it's still going to be awkward. I mean, it's just learning to, to constantly try to rebalance the ecosystem. And then to be sensitive, this is why I like the eco, one of the many reasons I like the ecosystem model more than the typical machine or sports analogies, which I can use also, but like in farming, I mean, it's not that simple. Like it's like, you, I mean, too much water, too little water, you know, more sun, less sun, plant this year. Like there's so many factors that are playing into it. So as I've tried to teach people, like if a, if a frontline person here introduces, uses our bottom line change system to propose a change. And I don't really love the change, but it's not like really bad. It's almost more important to me to support them in developing their leadership by supporting the change, even though the content, my content perspective is I don't really love it. Now, if I thought it was unethical or really destructive, it would be different. But you know, if they want to change the color of the coffee cup and I don't feel strongly one way or the other, I kind of am inclined to what we have now, but they're passionate to change it to green. Like I, I would wait personally, it's more important for them to feel 
a sense of having succeeded at leading because that will impact their work and their life in positive ways for years going forward from that one seemingly insignificant thing. Whereas if I just go like, dude, clearly my way is better, which I'm inside probably believe it is, but I need to push that back down and honor them and help them go forward. So it's just trying to rebalance the system, I guess. Yeah. I guess my only question is like, um, right now is what, what are you most excited about in your work right now? I think there's been that word vocation. Um, what's your, what's your edge? What are you excited about? Um, where is the tension that you're experiencing, like creative tension uh, in your work right now? Where's that? Where is that line? Uh, everywhere. Well, I, in seriousness, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I, it's everywhere. There's, I, I, if one, I'm trying to think it through, if one is paying attention and one understand, and if I embrace that there's rarely black and white right answers, even though Adam and I want them to be, uh, and that I'm trying to learn from everything and that every act can be creative, even as simple as saying hello to somebody, and that we try to bring love and beauty into everything we do, then it's always creative. And there's always tension because I don't know how to be no tension except when I'm sleeping. And even then I probably have tension. I just don't know about it. Well, we started with the beginning of your life asking about your childhood. Um, if we were to skip ahead to, you know, ge generations ahead, then looking back at your legacy, um, what comes to mind in terms of what you would say about your legacy? What what would be what would be the the word, phrase or sentence that might define it? Well, hopefully they're talking about this podcast. Probably as the number one thing. Uh, I don't know. Uh, hopefully that I contributed positively to the lives of the people that I know. Uh, in different ways for different people. Uh, hopefully that I learned a lot and I left behind some thoughts that were helping other people to continue that learning. Um, hopefully in the spirit of regenerative agriculture that we, Zingermans, me, maybe, humbly, uh, that we did enough good things to outweigh the things we did wrong to leave our world slightly better in meaningful ways than it was when we got here. How's that? The Beyond Listening podcast is brought to you by We Are Open Circle a social impact business that helps changemakers, organizations, and community groups evolve and thrive with integrity in our rapidly changing world. Our Beyond Listening program was designed to transform the way organizations work with complexity, rapid change, and the wisdom of diversity in a world that demands constant collective adaptation. Sign up for our newsletter for more Beyond Listening podcasts and view our upcoming trainings.